Well, different people in ministry have different patterns that they go through throughout the week. For me, I am one of those people that I, I go full speed Sunday through Thursday and sometimes a little bit into Friday. But Saturday is my day to crash. Saturday is the day that I relax. I catch up a little bit on things going on in the world. And from time to time, later in the day on Saturdays, I will be trying to keep up with some friends. And so I'll go on Facebook and Twitter and the, these other weird social media things that people in my generation are into. And some people in your generation, I see you there. And, and what I'll do is I'll just kind of try to track and see what's going on in my friends' lives this week. And as I'm on there, I always seem to come across different people from different churches. And I, I follow a lot of different churches on, on Facebook and Twitter so I can kind of keep track of what's going on in the Christian world and, and see what other churches are doing and what we might can learn from them. But th there's something that always amazes me about halfway through the afternoon on Saturday afternoon. And if you follow a lot of pastors, you might have seen this before. You'll start seeing posts that go something like this. I cannot wait for what's going to happen at Church X tomorrow. Hey, Church Y folks, get pumped for tomorrow's service. I am so pumped about this week's message at Church Z. It is going to have a huge impact on our families. Or it might be the next week on our single people. Or the next week on our 7th grade girls that have freckles. It's, they're, they're just excited about what's going on and they're pumped about what's going to happen at their church on a given Sunday. And there, there's, there's one guy, I'm not going to name who, who he is, but there's a pastor uh, in, in a different state who every single week, it's like, this is going to be the greatest message ever. I mean, he's got to have a letdown eventually. Uh, but but he, he's convinced each week is going to be better than the week before, and maybe it is. I don't know. I don't go to his church. But it always blows me away. To see how excited people are about the message that they're coming to bring on Sunday morning. And then I'm sitting there yesterday afternoon going, tomorrow I am preaching on the lament psalms and the traditional services at Martha Bowman. It's just kind of hard to go. I am so pumped about talking about people complaining to God. And, and, and you know, I run, I run uh, me and Lindsay Spinks, our communications administrative person, we, we do our social media stuff for the church. And. So we always try to put something out there about what's going on in our sermons for the week. And, and Tim's talking in the contemporary service about feeling like God's let you down. And I'm talking about lament psalms. And that just wasn't a happy post to put up yesterday. And, and so there's the, this wrestling that we have when it, when it comes to preaching. When it comes to these things that might not sound that exciting to get across. I can't really say that I'm excited or pumped or can't wait to talk about lament psalms. But what I will say is this is probably one of the most important things in all of Scripture that we can look at. In fact, this is one of the most important literary developments in, in the history of Scripture, in my opinion. Because these lament psalms are quite simply eloquently phrased complaints before God. Their prayers, their songs in which people pour out their hearts and say everything within their soul that is upset, everything within them that is filled with angst and hurt. 
And so it's not really appropriate to say that I'm pumped or excited about this message. But what I will say is that I believe that whether you're a believer who's walked with God your entire lives, or you are someone who is just on the fringe checking out the church, there's something in this message for you. If you feel like God doesn't care, there's something in this message for you. If you feel like God's been there before, but you're not sure where he is now, there's something in this message for you. Because the reality is, as we talked about last week, as we jumped into this series on the Psalms, this two-week series, is that there are different seasons that we go through in our lives. The, the German, the Sitz in Leben, which I'm still probably saying wrong, the setting in life, the different things that we go through, the different seasons of the soul, are very important to look at because in each one there are different ways that we naturally respond to God. And in each one there are good ways to respond to God and there, there are inappropriate ways to respond to God. And I believe that the Psalms help paint a picture for how we navigate the different seasons of our lives that we find ourselves in. So last week, we're kind of going a little bit out of order, but last week we talked about reorientation psalms and, and the three main seasons of life that I, I mentioned last week, and they're in your message notes if you have them this week. The three main settings in life are orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And last week, we, we started with the last one. We talked about reorientation psalms. Reorientation means we've gone through the valley, we've come out on the other side, and so we, we're looking straight ahead and giving thanks for what God has done and what God has brought us through. But what do we do in the valley? What do we do when all seems to be going against us, when nothing seems to be going our way? Those are the seasons of disorientation where there doesn't seem to be any clear direction for the future. And which is probably most important for us to understand how we ought to communicate with God. And so this week, we're spending some time in disorientation, looking at the lament psalms. Now, it's interesting to note that lament psalms are actually the most common type of psalm that you would find in all of the 150 psalms. What's interesting is that they make up roughly about half of the psalms, yet they are the least preached on, probably the least well-known even though they make up about half of the songs that are out there. If you were to take our hymnal, this morning we sang and recited together the psalm for this morning, Psalm 13, as part of a psalter reading. If you were to flip through, not every psalm is represented in the psalter. And you would find that it's lament psalms. I haven't actually done the count, but you would notice that there are not that many lament psalms worked in there. Why? Because none of us really get pumped or excited about coming to worship and talking about things that might seem negative. But the reality is, is that all of us are facing things in our lives, or have faced, or will face, will face at some point, seasons of disorientation in which things do not seem to be going our way. And where is God in those times, and how do we talk to a God we don't even feel like is there? And so this morning... We're going to go through Psalm 13, and I, I wish I had the, the whiteboard out, and I wish that it was a little bit cooler. I could have worn my tweed jacket and pretended that I was a professor for a week. But 
we're going to go through and we're going to break down Psalm 13. It's going to seem a little elementary. It's going to seem a little bit like your high school English class in which you're going through and trying to figure out the structure of the point. But I believe that in each step of the psalm, there are things that we can get out of. There are things that will help us to understand how we respond in those times. Things that will guide and direct us as we look to figure out how to express ourselves in our moments of frustration in the middle of our seasons of disorientation. So if you have your message notes, there are six words, six blanks on there. And I believe that these six things best describe the six movements which are found within lament psalms. Now, the first one is pretty simple. The very first part may seem like something you just want to overlook, but I believe it's actually one of the most important parts of the entire psalm. And that's the address. Psalm 13, verse 1, the first part of it says, How long, Lord? How long, Lord? Now, this might seem like it's unimportant detail. Of course, it's a psalm. Of course, it's directed to the Lord. But it, it's extremely crucial to understand where the psalm is going. Because it doesn't just express this psalm to anyone. It's not saying, hello world, let me express my confessions and my complaints to you. It is saying, Lord, how long, Lord? It's a cry out to the Lord. And even though there's a sense that the psalmist writing this feels like God is not even there, there's still some sort of relationship there in which the psalmist is able to say, Lord, how long, Lord? It's not just anybody that he is addressing. A few weeks ago, I was on our youth choir tour, and uh, as part of that experience, we have a, a few times throughout the week, we have different worship services, in which it's just our group, and we spend some time praying and singing, and uh, usually have a short message to kind of focus us for the day. And the first night of this year's youth choir tour, uh, our youth pastor, Ashley Griffin, gave a talk about what do you think God thinks of you? And what do you think of God? And he shared a quote, and I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor in the, hello, in the last century, uh, he had a, had a saying that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because what we think about God will completely help us to understand who we think God is. And, and who we think God is will shape the way that we view not only God, but the way that we view our role in the world. I would add to that quote that I think one of the second most important things about us is what we think God thinks of us. What we think that God thinks of us, because that shapes our understanding of our identity. And the psalmist cries out to the Lord. It's not just directed to the world. It's crying out to the Lord and saying, How long, Lord? The lament psalms start in that place of addressing it to God and saying, this is the one who needs to hear what I'm about to say. Well, then it gets a little crazy. And the, these are not things that we think of as typically being holy in our prayers. 
These are things that might seem a little bit weird if we came together in a worship service and we started singing these together. Because it takes a little bit of a shift into a complaint. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And the Psalms are filled with complaints like this. Some of my favorites are in Psalm 22, the psalmist says, I am a worm scorned by man. In Psalm 42, it says, my tears have been my food both day and night. These deep emotions of frustration, of sensing like God's not even there. Perhaps you've been in places like that before. And you might have felt it wasn't okay to express those complaints before God. But I believe the scripture says, absolutely, that's the place you direct your complaints. That's the place that you pour out those complaints because we believe that God is big enough to handle it. God is big enough to take it. My uh, grandmother said something to me when I was growing up that, that really dramatically shaped my faith moving forward. And, and my grandmother, some, some of you know her, uh, Mary Kay Cannon, she is, uh, she'd be happy to tell you, she is a Chata member of uh, Riverside United Methodist Church. She is a Chata member. Uh, you gotta, you got to say it like that. It, it doesn't have the same effect if you don't. But she is a, a Chata member of Riverside United Methodist Church. And she's funny. She'll come and hear me preach sometimes. And, and she'll immediately get on the phone with people in the afternoon from Riverside saying, I wasn't there this morning. I just went to hear my grandson preach. I'm coming back. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm like, me, Mama, I think that people realize by now you're not going anywhere. I think they, they realize you're, you're kind of part of this for the long haul. You're a child of Nimba, after all. And, and she, she taught Sunday school for years and helped shape the faith of so many people that were part of that church. And I always looked up to her as a pillar of faith, which is why what she said to me had such a huge impact on me. When I was young in my faith in high school, I, I, I was kind of struggling with something and, and saying, you know, oh, oh gosh, I just got to have faith. And, and she said, it's good to wrestle with our faith because it makes us stronger in the end. And I, that always <clears throat> struck me as odd that someone I look to as a pillar of faith would say, hey, it's good to wrestle with your faith. And I believe that that's what we see in the Psalms. We see people who are struggling with their faith. They're struggling with a sense of, is God really even there? And through that, as we'll see, their faith is being shaped and they are being molded. Then comes the petition. What good is it to complain if you don't have something you're going to ask for in return? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes. Or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. There's a petition that the psalmist pours out in verses 3 and 4 before God that basically says, God, I believe that you're strong enough to answer. Answer this cry. You've heard my complaint. Here is my petition for what will help pull me out of it. This is something really interesting happens. We've heard the complaint. 
We've heard the petition. And then, all of a sudden, in verse 5, we get a confession of trust. Verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And so there's a sense in the midst of this complaining, in the midst of this petitioning God, things may not look right, but there's a sense that the psalmist still believes in God, still believes that God is going to come through for them. And this is, I believe, such an essential part of pouring out our souls before God, that sense, that, that place of trust that we ought to be in. If we're addressing God, we ought to believe that God's going to come through. A few weeks ago, uh, Tim and John and I and, and, and JC and Connie Miller, as lay delegates, we were part of the annual conference. And then on the opening night of annual conference, uh, the only session I made, uh, we, were, we were there and the bishop was preaching and he, he shared this story that I had not heard before, but perhaps you have. Uh, it happened fairly recently, a couple of months ago. There was a, a nine-year-old boy that was abducted from his home and there was a, the kidnapper drove him around and for three hours he sang the song called Every Praise by Hezekiah Walker. And, and the song, if you've ever heard it before, it's not too hard for a nine-year-old to learn. It's the same thing over and over and over again. It's every praise is to our God. And it just keeps going like that. Um, just over and over and over and over. If you have a really good worship leader, it just keeps going up a key and up a key and up a key. And then you're just exhausted by the end of it. I don't know how a nine-year-old did it. But for three hours, he just kept singing that song over and over and over again. And eventually, the guy who had abducted, abducted him just dropped him back off. He didn't even do anything. He, he was like, this kid just won't stop singing. He won't stop praising God. I, what can I do to a kid that's praising God? And, and so the kid goes on, on a talk show, and they said, you know, you could have sang anything. And why did you choose to sing that? He, he said, well, I, I was sitting there, and even though I was scared, I, I knew that God was going to come through for me. And there's such wisdom in that place of peace. Such wisdom in being in that place with a confession of trust. And then the psalmist makes a vow of praise. Verse 6, I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. There was a guy I worked with several years ago whose mother tragically died when he was in college. And just one day, out of nowhere, uh, no preconditions, nothing. His mother was gone. And he was part of the, the music team at the campus ministry that we were a part of. And so he found himself having to stand up before the body of believers there and lead songs of praise to God. And he, he said that in the midst of it, in the midst of his deep hurt, he didn't always believe what he was singing. But what he realized was that couldn't not do that. He had to praise even in the midst of the pain. And I have seen this and you've seen this. As people are grieving, as people are going through difficulties, you'll, you'll still see them in church. And, and even though there's darkness in their life, there's darkness that they're experiencing, even in the midst of that, 
they still realize somewhere deep within them that even though things might be tough, it's part of what we need as believers to offer praise to God. There's a special thing that happens every couple of months or so in our contemporary service. Many of you will remember uh, Derek Wilson, who was part of our congregation and passed away a few years ago. Well, his family, uh, Camille, his wife, sits on one side of the room, and her son, Darian, uh, being your typical youth, uh, sits in a different spot from his mom. But every time we start singing the song, 10,000 Reasons, which is based on Psalm 103, which we recited part of as part of our call to worship this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Every time that song is sung, you see it. Over in this corner, this is from my perspective on the platform, over in this corner, you'll see Darian start walking around the back of the room. And as he comes around the back of the room, you see him arrive where his mom is standing, and he puts his arm around her. And for the entire song, he just stands there and holds her. Now what's significant about this song that many people may not realize was this was one of the songs sang at Darian's father's funeral. That in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their heartbreak, that was a song that as a family they stood and sang as a vow of praise in the midst of their hurt. And it brings them back to that place of reminding them that even though things have been tough, even though they've experienced hurt, we still praise to get through those times. We still praise because that's what we're called to do. That's what we're wired to do. Now, my question about the lament psalms, and something I've, I've wrestled with ever since I first came across the lament psalms uh, several years ago, is I think there's this really weird shift that happens between verses 4 and 5. If you're reading along, you'll notice that at verse 4 ends, my foes will rejoice when I fall. And then immediately, verse 5 begins, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And then the vow of praise, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. What happens between verses 4 and 5? This is why I think that the Lament Psalms are one of the most intriguing literary forms in the history of the world. What happens between verse 4 and 5, between this absolute cry of anguish, petition before God, and then this sense of trust, the sense of belief, and the sense of praising God? Did the situation change? There's no reason to think that it did. Was the prayer answered yet? We don't really see that it was. Then what is with all of this? I will trust. I will rejoice. I will sing praise because God has been good to me. This is the same God that a few verses earlier he was complaining had forgotten. Was hiding his face from me. What does it mean to just all of a sudden shift into that place of a confession of trust and about praise. I have a theory. Who knows if it's right? 
but I think there, there's some pretty good evidence that points us in this direction. Many people know that the Ten Commandments, as we call them, have different numbering systems in different traditions. For those of you that grew up Lutheran, you might have had a different numbering system than what we uh, in the United Methodist Church have. Uh, Catholics have a different numbering system, and, and the Jewish tradition has a different numbering system. And it's interesting to know that in the Israelite tradition, the Ten Commandments are not actually called the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Words. And the first word is not a command, actually. The first word, as they number it, is when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of slavery. The first word is, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of trouble. And so Jewish teachers will tell you that that first word is a command of remembrance. A command of remembering who God is and what God has done for them. And so maybe that's what happens between verse 4 and 5. They're in the middle of crying out before God and all of a sudden it hits them. All of a sudden it hits them and they, and they go, you know what? Things may be tough now, but we have seen that God is a deliverer. We remember that God has brought us through things before. And because of that, we can put our trust in Him. Because of that, we can praise Him. Even in the midst of their chaos, they seem to have come back to a place in which they can turn to God and say, You're there. In the midst of it all, they remember. And I believe that that's part of what we're called to do as people of faith. As we come before God, and I believe it's a good and a holy thing in the dark seasons of our lives to pour out our complaints and our petitions before God. Not to the world, not to just complain for the sake of complaining, but to come before God, the only one with power to sustain us, the only one with power to minister to our deepest needs, the only one who can answer our cry and really give us what we need. We come to Him and we pour our hearts out before Him in those seasons of disorientation. And we come, and through it all, as we're at the altar, as we're pouring our souls out before God, maybe we'll remember. And maybe we'll remember that through it all, God has been there for us, that, that time and time again before, He has pulled us out and given us hope. For the future. As we close our service, we're going to sing one of the greatest hymns ever written. It is well with my soul. And many of you know this story. It's been told many a time. But uh, Horatio Spafford, the guy who wrote this, had a wife and four daughters. And he was held up on business and he sent them across the Atlantic without him. And while they were traveling, by boat, they were involved in a shipwreck, and, and all of the daughters died. He received a telegram from his wife saying, saved alone. And as he traveled across the Atlantic, as he came to the place where their ship went down, 
he wrote these words to the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Now, how, how is it that someone in such a deep sense of anguish, hurt, of lament, could write words when peace, like a river, attended my way? How could they say words such as, It Is Well With My Soul? I believe it's because it's what we're called to do. I believe it's because this is what the psalmists have laid out for us as the way that we express our frustrations before God. We come, we pour our hearts out, we pour out the depths of our soul before God. But when we reach that place, we ought to come to a place that even in the midst of the hurt, we remember that God is there. And whatever comes our way, Hearts still must say it is well with our souls. Would you stand as we sing?